0: Recovering from codependency, my name is Susie. Hi, Susie. I grew up in rural Oklahoma, the firstborn child in a church-going family with lots of unchristian hurts, hang-ups, and habits. My dad used alcohol, women, and gambling and avoided work and responsibility. My mom was obsessed with fixing my dad. She was a workaholic and struggled with anger and fits of rage. Because of her unpredictable moods, I always dreaded coming home. No matter how hard I tried, I felt I could never please her. I lived in constant fear of being punished by her for saying or doing the wrong thing. My dad, when he was home, was checked out, emotionally distant. He was someone I wanted to know who showed very little interest in me. My little girl head was a very busy place as I coped by trying to read the moods of the adults around me and to behave in a way that would keep some level of order, structure, and predictability in my life. I tried to control the moods of others by being the perfect child. I learned that good or bad, the worst thing you could do was call attention to yourself. I learned that when someone behaved badly, it was better to talk about them than to talk to them. I learned to tell lies to protect the reputations of my parents. I took care of the emotional needs of grown-ups whose job it was to take care of me. I spent a lot of time escaping into my own fantasy world of books and pretend. I lived in fear. Little did I know that these patterns of thinking would persist throughout my life, leading me on a path of destruction called codependency. When I visit my mom, we often look through old family photos together. My mom always comments on one. It's a picture of me as a little girl, probably about three years old. I'm standing on a chair that I've dragged over to the kitchen sink where we lived at the farmhouse, washing the dishes, or pretending to, I'm not sure which. As my mom remembers the story, she had been in her bedroom crying, and when she came out, she saw me there. That day, she had found out that she was pregnant, and feeling trapped in a horrible marriage, it was not a good day for her. She reminisces about how I cheered her up when she saw me there trying to help. When I see the photo, it makes me sad for that little girl. I wonder if this is where it all started, the codependent belief that I could change how other people felt if I just did the right thing. My childhood was filled with chaos, depression, and drama. Despite all this, my parents and their parents were professed Christians who not only attended church several times throughout the week, but served in many areas of church life. I knew we were keeping many secrets, and my mind was often preoccupied with trying to figure out what I could or could not talk about. We never talked about what was happening in our home. We pretended everything at home was just fine. Ephesians four twenty five says, stop lying to each other, tell the truth, for we are all parts of each other. And when we lie to each other, we are hurting ourselves. At the age of eight, my Sunday school teacher prayed with me as I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. My prayers took on a new vigor as night after night, I prayed with childlike faith that God would stop the fighting in my family. But as the years passed, my parents' struggles only worsened, and with my childish understanding of God, I became more and more untrusting of people, and eventually of God. Exodus 25 describes what was happening on our family. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Then, just before my 16th birthday, my mom did something that turned my world upside down. She announced that we were moving to Houston. My dad would not be going. Many times before, my mom had kicked my dad out of the house, but this was different. This felt a lot more permanent. I was mad that she had kept her plan to move a secret from me. Over the years, I'd taken on the role as the negotiator between my parents. How dare she not let me try to fix this first? I dug my teenage heels into the ground and refused to leave with her. I thought she would change her mind if I didn't go. She left anyway. I was a very sad and lonely, unsupervised 16-year-old. I started smoking cigarettes, drag racing cars on country roads where my grandpa had taught me to drive on tractors and having beer parties at her house late into the night while my dad was out gambling. My mom became more and more concerned about me. She was hearing the stories about how things were with me and she began talking with my dad again. Before too long, dad had once again convinced my mom to give him another chance. My mom, however, had a condition. She would not return to Oklahoma. We would all move to a new town away from all the evil influences, the gossip, and the interfering in-laws. It would be a fresh start for everyone. In November 1968, my junior year, we moved to Colorado Springs. I have many wonderful memories of our family being together again. And despite my fears that I would never again have a social life, the move was one of the best things that ever happened to me though it did not solve my parents' problems for very long. Colorado Springs was a military town, so kids there were used to making new friends. My oaky accent made me stand out, and it got me attention, which I liked and hated all at the same time. Even today, I have trouble handling attention. I was ashamed of how I had behaved when we lived in Oklahoma, and I was ready to get right with God. In in our new home, it was my mom's role to find a new church. She was in a time of questioning her faith, so we were visiting many different churches. Meanwhile, my new friends invited me to a Christian youth group called Young Life. God was giving me a choice, I think, one he often gives to teens, to turn my childhood decision into an adult decision to fully surrender my will to him. But to my demise, I met a cute boy, and I chose to follow him instead. Always on the lookout for my Prince Charming, who could rescue me, this boy became an obsession for me. Over the next 10 years, I chased him, married him, and then divorced him. This was a familiar relational pattern to me. He was an alcoholic. I was a workaholic. During our short marriage, I tried to meet my emotional needs with work. Be it school or a job, work was the place I felt good about myself. People appreciated my hard work and gladly gave me more work to do. But what I thought was a good thing was about to bring me to a screeching halt. At 26, at what seemed like overnight to me, my kidneys quit functioning properly. I had put work above everything, ignoring the signals my body had been sending me for months. Though I didn't know it at the time, I was a workaholic, and like any addiction, it robbed me of my choices and almost my life. Now all I would be doing was nothing for a long time. My mom graciously intervened and took me to her home to nurse me through a long recovery, and thanks to her, it was successful. My already fragile marriage, however, did not survive this separation. By the grace of God, I had healed physically, but not yet emotionally, and certainly not spiritually. Now I see God was once again pursuing me. Would these painful circumstances get my attention? Would I turn to him and recommit to the decision I had made as a child to follow him? But again, to my demise, I chose to follow another man instead, a new Prince Charming. Seemingly different, yet ultimately quite the same." you guys you guys know scott Scott. so you're laughing that's good you're laughing with him you're laughing with him oh jeez. my last time so I'm milking it i met him at a work party you might say he was not my type which is exactly what attracted me to him His life was dedicated to having fun. He bragged that his goal in life was to be happy. And he liked me a lot. And that meant I must be kind of fun too. Once again, a relationship became my obsession. I loved the way he made me feel. Truth be told, he was recklessly irresponsible, and I was hopelessly controlling. A perfect match. (laughs) Eventually, all that irresponsible began to lose its shine. Irresponsibility began to lose its shine. My biological clock was ticking, and I decided it was time for us to get married. We were 30 now, and I was ready to start a family. And before long, despite his foot dragging, Scott and I were married. Yay. Gotcha. And once again, there I was, recreating the latest version of the family I grew up in. We moved to Phoenix when Tyler was one month old to start a business together with my parents backing. When the typical strains of life with two children came along, our relationship became more and more distant. I worked hard to keep up the pretense that we were a typical family. Scott was a devoted and loving father who always enjoyed playing with the kids, having fun, and he worked to provide for us. Everything was fine, I kept telling myself. But there was an emotional distance between us that kept growing wider and wider. Scott was gone more and more, pursuing the fun of playing golf and, the, and rugby whenever he could. I couldn't tag along anymore now that we had two little boys. As the demands of our family grew, I took on more and more responsibility for caring for the kids and running the household. In addition, I always worked outside of the home as much as I could, helping Scott with our family business. My resentments grew, along with my exhaustion. I pushed the thoughts down that I was repeating the patterns of my childhood home. I criticized him and complained about him being gone, even when he was home. I nursed my negative thoughts and fears of being abandoned. The distance between us grew greater and greater while I worked harder and harder to pretend it wasn't happening, trying to keep all those plates spinning. A crisis hit our family business when my parents finally divorced. Scott and I decided it would be better if we moved back to Colorado. Sound familiar? (laughs) There I returned to full-time work, finding escape once again in my workaholism. Psalm 40.12 describes how I was feeling at that time. Problems far too big for me to solve are piled higher than my head. Meanwhile, my sins, too many to count, have all caught up with me, and I am ashamed to look up. Then it all changed. I answered my phone at work, and the police were on the line. Probably some employee was in trouble, I thought. I was shocked to learn the police were looking for my husband. I honestly can't remember exactly how things happened. I know I felt numb, but I do know I started trying to fix it right away. Before I even knew where Scott was, or really what he had done, I'd called a lawyer. From there, I made plans to see a counselor and talk to the pastor at a little church we sometimes attended. That very day, Scott was arrested and the courts took control of his life. He began his own journey of recovery. But I was in crisis, too. I realized I was married to a man I did not know. I was angry at him, but even more angry at myself. I'd been doing life with a drug addict for the past 10 years, thinking that was perfectly fine. What was wrong with me? The shame was overwhelming. I told no friends or family what had happened. I felt so stupid. Other than stupid and angry, I had no idea what I felt, much less what I wanted or needed. One thing I did know was I did not want to lose him, and I did not want our sons to lose him. And somehow I knew, deep inside, that I was as messed up as he was. His new counselor met with me and told me to get into recovery, but I was resistant. How would that help? I wasn't an addict. He was an
1: addict.
0: So here we were, Scott going to meetings, us not talking. Me trying not to create any stress on him because I might make him use again, right? Sneaking around, checking trash cans for signs he might have used again. Normal family life, right? (laughs) Tiptoeing through life on the edge of disaster, my gut wrenched in fear that he would fail, which meant he would be gone. My anger sitting right here in my throat, sickening me and ready to spew out all the time. And then my wake-up call came. It was a beautiful spring day in Colorado. Blue sky, so intense you feel like you can jump up and touch it. Air so crisp it crackles when you breathe. How I miss those Colorado days. Little six-year-old Tyler came inside from playing. I looked out the window and saw toys strewn all over the backyard. I snapped, came unglued. Lost it. Whatever. I yelled at Tyler to get right back out there and put things away in the shed. A few minutes later, I looked out and saw him playing with one of the toys, the shed door still standing open with bikes and toys, half in, half out. I went out there and I started pulling things out, throwing them into the yard and yelling at him about the pathetic job he had done. Full on in my rant, I realized that the neighbors could hear me. Embarrassed, I turned and looked at Tyler in the face, and I saw on his little face, the same expression I'd seen many times in an all too familiar family snapshot, the face of a little girl standing at a chair at the sink washing dishes, trying to figure out how to please her impossible mom. And there I said to myself, this is not happening again. Out of money, we were broke. With no other options, I found an Al-Anon meeting nearby and began my own journey of recovery. Today I know that God was again using painful circumstances to get my attention. Would I finally choose to follow him? Romans eight thirty-eight. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels won't. And all the powers of hell itself cannot keep God's love away. Nothing at all. At my 12-step meetings, I finally found a safe place to tell my story. There I found kindness, not judgment. Acceptance, not rejection. There I heard wisdom The grace people extended to me in those early meetings saved my life. There I learned to listen. I learned to be real. I learned it was okay to be wrong. I learned to feel. I learned that there were things I liked and things I didn't like. And it was okay if the other person didn't like the same things as I did. What a world I had been missing trying to please others and gain their approval by being perfect. Even my own approval, whatever that is. The more emotionally healthy I became, the more open I became to spiritual matters. I began praying and reading my Bible again. Early in my recovery, I wrote in the front of my Bible, if God sent me a letter, it would say, Dear Susie, I do not need your help. Love, God. Love, <laughs> God. I realized how he had always been with me, protecting me. I could see his faithfulness in my life. I was beginning to trust him and find joy in surrendering to him. I was choosing this time to follow him. And the more I surrendered, the more change was happening, and it was happening fast. And I was enjoying the freedom of letting go and letting God. I completed my four-step inventory and prepared to meet with my sponsor. She, her name was Marcia, being the wise woman that she was, insisted that I read my inventory out loud to God before she would meet with me to hear my fist step. Sheepishly, I knelt by my bed, reading my inventory, confessing aloud to God how I'd been hurt and how I had turned right around and hurt other people. In this very real and detailed confession, I experienced his God his forgiveness God's forgiveness in a way I had never before experienced never again would I feel that I could not go to the Lord with any problem even when I had created them I now understand that I am made right by his righteousness not by doing the right thing I stepped out of legalism and into grace for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8. Life began changing quickly with both Scott and me in recovery. As we made progress in applying the principles of recovery in our own lives, our marriage began to improve. Now we were functioning almost as two adults still working on our programs and fully committed to rebuilding our lives together. When Scott was offered a promotion in his job that required a transfer to California, I was able to trust God with the move away from the place I loved. This time moving was not a way to run from my problems. This time I would grieve the loss of my of the new friends I had made re- in recovery, the rhythm of meetings and phone calls and the beauty of Colorado. This time I would take it one day at a time and trust God for the long-range planning. We bought a house near Big Valley Grace, and soon we all settled in. We walked into this very room for the first time in March of 1994. A few weeks later, <laughs> just wait. That's nothing. Just wait. <laughs> a few weeks later, right. Back there, in a chair in this room, my sweet husband, who had come to believe that God was a higher power as he understood him, gave his life to Jesus Christ. I have to admit, I was happy, but I was not prepared for the changes this would bring, as once again my world was tipped upside down by my husband's choices. As a new believer, Scott sought after God with the same passion with which he had pursued fun all those years ago. We both threw ourselves into knowing God by studying his word and taking advantage of any opportunity the church offered for us to learn. We started serving, and through this, we got to know pastors and leaders in the church. And within only two short years, I found myself married to a pastor. And it was Scott. It was still Scott. It sounds impossible, so I thought I'd better be sure you knew it was still Scott. <laughs> oh, that meant at the age of 44, seems so young now, I was now a pastor's wife. The temptation to pretend was ever present as I tried to fit into this very unlikely role. I struggled to figure out how to maintain my integrity and the sobriety from my codependent issues that I had gained. but God kept bringing people into my life who had 12-step recovery, and I was, find, I was finding it hard to get myself to meetings, myself to meetings. I wanted, more than anything, to meld those two worlds, people in recovery, with people in church. Now, it's 25 years later, and you are here tonight. Okay, sorry, you didn't have to clap. Thank you for supporting me in my recovery. I have a meeting to go to every week now in my church where people come to be real and to heal and to find or return to Jesus. What a great, great God we serve. Because he loves me so much, God has answered the prayers I prayed as a little girl all those years ago. The prayer for my family to stop fighting and love one another. Today, I actually have that family. There is love and peace in my home. And so it is for the next generation, as our two little boys are now grown men with wives and children of their own, whom they love and care for, and yes, even fight with and come back together again with, just as they saw their parents do. God has given me the miracle in a way I could have never asked for or even imagined. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? You speak as though I were someone very great, O Lord God. What more can I say about the way you have honored me? You know what I'm really like. For my sake, O Lord, and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known. First Chronicles seventeen sixteen through 19. As my journey continues, the Lord gives me new insights and the lessons of the past become more clear. The pressures of life never cease and with them come new opportunities for growth. But at the heart of it all are the tools of recovery. Almost three decades' worth of meetings and relapses and step studies and gratitude lists and books on recovery and listening to God and trying to control and surrendering once again. These 12 steps are the spiritual disciplines that guide my life. Today, much of my recovery work is on the maintenance steps 10, 11, and 12. Most days, I try to get out my journal, take my daily inventory, and work on forgiving minor offenses and making my amends promptly. I spend time with Jesus and out of what I have received with gratitude, I serve others. I'm happy to let God use me and no longer expect to be the perfect anything. If just being me is enough for God, it'll have to be enough for me. My heart is full of thanksgiving to God who chose me when I was eight. I'm thankful that he protected me so faithfully. And showed me great mercy during my years of unfaithfulness. I am thankful now that I serve in this church where people can come and be real about what's happening in their lives. So they don't have to pretend like my family did. Lamentations 3.23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Thank you for letting me share. Great evening. You <laughs> <laughs> may say
1: the first.
0: You may say the first.
1: No. Yeah. what a journey life is that's man there's a million books that could be written about that story in uh, 25 minutes um make sure you give her a hug or say a thanks or you know it's not near as important that we receive praise as it is we receive relationships so if you you can go on that site and just say hey um thank you anything you want to say it'd mean a lot to us uh uh, as we go on a new journey. But um, give her one more hand, please. Thank you. And, uh... <sighs> Let's stand and say a serenity prayer. It's incredible to see all you here. I wish you all could come up here and just stand where I am. This is not happening anywhere in the world. I hope you know that. I mean, this, this is how many people in recovery after COVID? This is unbelievable. So, um, uh, Let's say it, the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Listen to that. That the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. First-time guests, join us right across the hall there. First-time guests. We'll see you all back in an hour.